0: This is uh, this is the first in a, a new series on the book of 1 John. Uh, we'll spend the next two months working through this book. Uh, the writer of this letter, letter, as the name implies, is John. It's John the Apostle, uh, one of the twelve uh, of Jesus' apostles, and an eyewitness, as we'll see, to all that Jesus did and all that he achieved. It's the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, and there are so many similarities between John's Gospel and uh, John's letters that some thought that um, have thought that this letter was written as a companion to the Gospel, maybe even as a as a bit of a commentary uh, of the Gospel. Uh, John also wrote Revelation. Uh, so after Paul, he's the most prolific writer in the New Testament, uh, and of course John wrote. First, second, and third John. Now, these three letters actually come as a package. And in fact, um, when the, the the order of the books in the New Testament was decided, it was purely on the basis of, for each writer, the longest came first, down to the shortest. Uh, but really, the the order of these three letters should be reversed. We should read three John first, then two John and then 1 John. Um, We won't read them, but just to explain why, 3 John, if you read it, it'll take you a minute or so, very brief, and it's, it's a brief note to the key leader of a church, a man named Gaius, and commending to him the reliability of the courier who was bringing these letters. 2 John is a letter written to the actual church of which Gaius was a leader, uh, encouraging Christians to stand firm on the original message of Jesus that they had received, um, and specifically saying, don't pay any credence to anyone who comes, who undermines that gospel that you've received. And then 1 John, uh, much larger than those other two, was a circular letter, designed to be read by this church that Gaius was a leader of, um, but then carefully copied, and then the copy would be sent on to other churches. And as each church received that letter, they too would make copies, so they had one for themselves and then pass it on to the other churches. The letters were written towards the end of the first century, at a time when churches were being impacted by uh, wrong teaching that either denied Jesus deity, that he is God, or his full humanity, or, or some combination of the two. And John is writing to encourage them to stand firm on the truth of the gospel and to its true outworking of love. John himself was charged by Jesus to faithfully and accurately pass on his teaching. Uh, Go and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptising them and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. John took that command seriously. And so he's very concerned to see Christians everywhere to have a confidence in the, the gospel that they have received and believed and that it is an accurate a uh, representation, portrayal of Jesus himself. So right at the start of his letter, John wants to remind us of who the God who sent the Lord Jesus is. According to uh, research, 68% of people in Australia would say either that they believe in God or have some kind of spiritual beliefs that there's something beyond the physical world. However, if you were to ask the average person, what do you mean by God? What do you understand by God? We'll probably get a whole variety of answers, many of which won't actually correspond with the true and living God that we see revealed in the Bible. If you were allowed to only use one word as a starting point for explaining who the true God is, what would you use? Well, John says that it begins with knowing that God is light in verse 5 of chapter 1. If you have a Bible, it would be helpful to have it open because I'll be referring to some verses as we go through it. God is light. In fact, he seems to be saying that This understanding of God as light is at the very heart of the gospel that he has passed on to his readers. It's something that he wants to affirm as the uh, fundamental truth of the Christian faith. When John says God is light, in him there is no darkness at all, he's saying something about the truthfulness and the reliability of God and how he communicates with human beings throughout the Bible this imagery of light is used to describe God revealing himself to humanity think of the creation story the first thing God creates is light what we now know scientifically to be the basic building blocks of the entire universe energy, light and this this Creation of light begins this process of bringing order out of chaos, forming a creation that he calls very good and that reflects his own character as the creative artist that made everything. John describes it in his Gospel in this way. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then a bit later, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world God created light as a reflection of his own nature as light but also as these verses tell us in preparation for the day when the Son himself would enter into this creation and take up a body that is formed out of the same basic building blocks of light that this whole universe is built from And this reflection of his character is epitomised in human beings who are made in his image. That's what is meant by the true light, which gives light to everyone. I think that's a reference there to the image of God in which he created us. Uh, He, as the true light, has created us in his image. We live because of his light. Now, because God is light, and because God is the creator of light, those who live in a right relationship with him are depicted as being in the light, while those who are ignorant of him and who rebel against him are in darkness. This was illustrated in the story of the Exodus. One of the signs of God's judgment upon Egypt, one of the ten plagues, was three days of complete darkness right across the land of Egypt. Yet we're told that the Israelites had light where they lived. It's a picture of the world in complete darkness spiritually, but those who are God's people are living in the light. So to know God is to see the light. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians. He talks about having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. To know God is to be in the light. And in particular, the the Bible's understanding is that we know God as he speaks to us. So God's word is described as a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. As God's word is heard and taught, those who hear it receive and find a clarity about life. A freedom to walk into life with a humble confidence that God has shown us how to live truthfully and authentically. Now one of the first things that we see in Jesus' teaching, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, is this statement. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus here is addressing the Israelites, the Jews, those who knew themselves to be God's Chosen people who knew the true and living God, who were the guardians of His word in the scriptures, and who then had a responsibility to be the light of the world, to make His truth known to all the nations. They weren't the source of light. They were the reflectors of the light. A bit like the moon. The moon has no light in itself. When we look at the moon, we don't actually see the moon's light. We see the sun's light reflected from the moon. This was, however, a mandate that Israel had failed. Not only was the majority of humanity living in darkness, but even those who should have known better, those who had God's word in black and white, They had rejected the light of God themselves, demonstrated by the fact that when Jesus came as God in the flesh, they rejected him. So Israel had failed, but then we hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He came to accomplish what Israel had failed to do. His ongoing conversation with the Jews showed that he wasn't just a reflector of the light like they were, but he, he is God, personified. He is the true light that has come into the world, the complete revelation of the Father himself. So with all this biblical background, we can now come to our passage and to see what it means when John is saying, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. He establishes right from the start that he's speaking and writing about concrete realities. Look at verses one and two. This message is about something that actually happened in history. Something of which he's not only been an eyewitness, but a participant. He's not only seen it, but he's actually touched this reality. He means that literally. He would have physically touched his friend and Lord Jesus. He's, an, has an, he's had an experience. And that experience has confirmed and established Everything that beforehand might have been passed off as mere theory. He's speaking about truth. This reality is not only factually true, though, but it's life-giving. Verse 2 says, this life was made manifest. And it's a life that's eternal because it's a life that's been sent by the Father. This isn't just a set of intellectual ideas to be known and believed and remembered. This is truth that brings real and full life. And it's such real life, true life, that it lasts forever. And what makes it real and full and true life is that it is relational. Look at verses 3 and 4. John understands that his message is both about a relationship with the Father and a message that creates authentic relationships between the Father and people. John desires to have fellowship with those that he's writing to. And this fellowship flows from fellowship with God, but more than that, it it comes from the fellowship that exists within God himself, between the Father and the Son. He could have just said, and our fellowship is with God, but he makes the point, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. Fellowship with one another is only possible because God is not a monad He is triune, he's a trinity. Before creation, it wasn't just nothing and God. Before creation, there was loving fellowship, communion between Father, Son and Spirit. And the act of creation flowed out of that fellowship. So first comes the triune fellowship at the heart of who God is, Father, Son and Spirit. Then comes our fellowship with this triune God, by the work of the Spirit, through the Gospel, then comes our fellowship with all of those who also have this fellowship with God. It's the ultimate, perfect relationship network. God within himself, us with him, and in him, us with one another. It's the only relationship network that brings satisfaction and uh, and fullness to the deep human longing and yearning for community. The fruit of these relationships we see in verse 4 is joy. Joy is the emotion that gives life meaning. It's a deep-seated assurance that despite what may happen in the world or in our lives, we are secure in the goodness and richness of meaningful, faithful and loving relationships with God and with one another. Joy is when we find satisfaction and contentment in God alone. If there was to be the highest aim for a human being, it would be joy. John Piper says, It is your God-given, Bible-mandated duty at every moment of your life to strive to be more satisfied in God as your supreme treasure than you are in anything else in the universe. As we saw last week in the final sermon in our series on holiness, that the worst witness to the world for the gospel Is a church and a people who don't know their identity as children of the Father. Joyless Christians are the worst witness of the Gospel because the fruit of the ultimate fruit of the Gospel is joy. So God is light. Knowing Him gives truth and life and joy. And we could say that to truly know God then results in us truly knowing ourselves, to find in knowing him our true and our full and our authentic humanity. However, we're told, though, that as human beings, by nature we are in darkness, not in the light. And the path for a human being to come out of darkness into the light and to know this life and joy isn't as simple as just doing it. Our only hope to come out of darkness into light is if that God himself will shine his light into our darkness. And that's what God has done. This concrete historical reality when God acted in time, in history to do something that will remove that barrier. This reality is what John has said, he's heard and he's seen and he's touched the reality of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Now verses uh, 6 down to verse 2, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, give us three ways or three categories of thinking about sin and how Jesus provides the solution to all three. Verse six tells us that we, we might claim to know Him, to have fellowship with Him, but actually we're walking in the darkness. And verse seven is the solution. When we walk in the light of God, we know that Jesus' blood cleanses us from sin. And then verse eight, says that we may say that we are not sinful, but actually we're deceived in saying that. Verse 9 is the solution. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And then verse 10 tells us that we might say, I haven't actually sinned. But if we do that, we actually are making God out to be a liar because he tells us that we have sinned. And 2 verses 1 to 2 are the solution. We have an advocate in Jesus, one who represents us before the Father who has given himself as a propitiation for our sins. You see, there's a progression there. All sin begins with being cut off from the light of God. It's the relational problem, as Paul says in Romans 1, For although they, although we, knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Because of this, we have been handed over by God to this darkness and we've become corrupted, stained by sin in our very nature. And then thirdly, the outworking of this is our sinful actions, what we call sins. When most people hear the word sin, they probably tend to just think of this third category, things that we do. Most people are willing to accept I'm not perfect. I will fail from time to time. You know, it's only the the, the real ego, egotists who won't admit that they sometimes do the wrong thing. So people will accept that, but what what then becomes offensive is the notion that we're not just imperfect, we're actually corrupt. That we have sin within us. Modern human, humanism wants to tell us that underneath we're essentially good. But we do what we do. We, we sin because we have sinned. We're sinful by nature. And we're sinful by nature because we have cut ourselves off from fellowship with God and we walk in darkness instead of light. But as we've seen, the cross of Jesus... Is the solution to all three categories. He cleanses us. He forgives us. He stands on our behalf before the Father on the basis of His sacrifice so that not one sin is held to our account. The cross brings a holistic salvation. It brings us back into fellowship with the Father it renews our hearts and deals with our sinful nature and it bears fruit in a change of behaviour where we shun sin instead of living in it. To declare that God is light is also a call. It's a call to people to come out of the darkness into the light. come into the light isn't an easy thing to do. When we come into the light we have all of our sin exposed. And with the sin, the guilt and with the guilt, the shame and the fear but we don't come alone into the light of God. We come With Christ, we come in Christ on the basis of His death for us. We come to the Father who is ready and willing to welcome us in because of what His Son has done. There is no greater news for weary sinners than this. There's no greater assurance for Christians when we feel doubt and fear. We must all come to the Father Believer and unbeliever alike on the same basis. When John says in 2 verse 2, he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. He is saying that there is no one who is exempt from the need to be cleansed, the need to be forgiven, the need to be brought out of darkness into light. All must come to the Father through the Son alone. There's no other way, there's no other plan, nothing we can do. There's no other means but by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John is a letter about assurance. He writes so that his readers and so that we may know for sure that we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. And through this, we may know that we have fellowship with one another. And these opening words in the first chapter are the foundation of that assurance. We must never, as persons and as a church, lose sight of this foundation, the historical flesh and blood reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. If you struggle in knowing an assurance of salvation, if you wonder sometimes, am I I really a Christian? Is my faith really for real? Does God really accept me? Then just come again to the cross. See what he has done for you in his death and resurrection. And if you know that you are still in darkness, if you know that you haven't actually been brought into the light, then the call to you from Jesus is crystal clear. Come into the light. Have your sins washed away and know the Father's welcoming embrace. Let's pray.